Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You have repped hundreds of Olympic athletes. Correct. How many were broke? At any given time, probably half, if not more. In the end, you're living below the poverty line before you make it. I mean, you literally are in line with a bagger at a supermarket. Welcome to the Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Next month, on February 4th, hundreds of athletes, arm-in-arm and clad in stars and stripes, will walk out behind the American flag for the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics. That scene will portray a team, one that's fought tirelessly together to fulfill lifetime dreams. But what may get lost in that moment is how many of these Olympians have had to chase those dreams alone, with almost no financial support from the team they represent. Because while the Olympic movement generates billions in revenue and has for years enriched the United States Olympic Committee, very little of that money is flowing back to the individuals whose actual athletic accomplishments make the games what they are. On today's podcast, you're going to hear a 2018 report from R. John Frankel about that very issue and learn that the vast majority of U.S. Olympians striving to be the best in the world are often struggling just to make ends meet. Among the athletes' stories you'll hear will be that of Jonathan Cheever, an elite snowboarder who in the lead-up to the games in Pyeongchang had to juggle training on the mountain with financial hardship off of it. After you hear that report, we'll be joined by Cheever to bring his story up to date and dive deeper into the business of Olympic sports. All that to come, but first, here's John Frankel's piece from 2018. It's the greatest spectacle in all of sports the Olympics. During the last games, half of the entire planet tuned in to watch some part of the two-week-long show. Half the planet. And in this country, it's must-see TV. Five years ago, the games in London became the most-watched TV event in U.S. history, with more than 200 million American viewers. It all translates into hundreds of millions of dollars for those who oversee and run America's Olympic team, the United States Olympic Committee. In fact, over the last decade, the USOC has taken in more than $2 billion in revenue. United States of America. But this is a story about where that money does not go. According to insiders, many, if not most, of America's Olympic hopefuls get virtually no financial help from the USOC, they're living hand-to-mouth, broke, or worse. I expected a lot more support rather than running up my credit card debt into, you know, close to $70,000, dollars $70,000 or $80,000? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> the way I kind of got through my career is just with, you know, Chase Visas, MasterCards, American Express, whatever. Jonathan Cheever is representing the U.S. as a top snowboarder at the upcoming Winter Olympics. 
He says he had to spend about $30,000 last year out of his own pocket. Training, buying equipment, and flying himself to Olympic qualifiers, which aren't held in Vermont or Utah, but... Argentina, Austria, France, Italy, and Turkey. It adds up. Oh, quickly, very quickly. And so, in his spare time, you'll find 32-year-old Cheever not working on technique or working out, but slogging away here as a licensed plumber back home in Saugus, Massachusetts. He says that the little help he got last year from the USOC, a $1,500 stipend plus health insurance, only covered a fraction of his costs, which is why he's always ready to pick up odd plumbing jobs for a few extra bucks, even when he's on the road with his team on the way to a training camp. I got a text message from someone that said, hey, I... I have an emergency, I really need this water heater installed now. And so I had to take all the guys in the back of my truck in Park City, um, dump them on Main Street for three hours while I installed the water heater, and then we jumped back in the car and drove to Telluride for a team camp and then a World Cup. While Cheever finances his Olympic dreams, installing water heaters and fixing toilets, you'll find his fellow U.S. Olympic snowboarder, Mike Trapp, under the hood fixing cars. If you come home with a medal, will the USOC take credit for it? Absolutely. Do they deserve credit for it? Um, in my eyes, no. They would have really done nothing to get me an Olympic medal. But they'll hold you up as a... They will hold me up as a trophy. Trap is a top-ranked snowboarder in his discipline, slalom racing, and a two-time national champion. When people think of Olympians, do you think they think of you or they think of a Michael Phelps? Michael Phelps. Why? Because that's the image that's portrayed. Is it accurate? For the top athletes like Michael Phelps and the Lindsey Vons, sure. But for the athletes that are below them, that isn't even close to the reality. What is the reality? That they're just scraping by. To make matters worse, Trapp says, the Olympians he competes against from different countries aren't in the same boat. Nearly every other country on Earth funds their aspiring Olympians with a steady stream of government money, allowing them to train full-time. I talk to them all the time from Austria, Italy, and Germany, and these countries, and they're baffled that I'm paying my own way. Baffled. They don't pay their own way? No. No. But here, Congress has handed all responsibility for the Games over to the USOC, a private nonprofit that enjoys virtually no government oversight. So Mike Trapp had to train for this year's games on $3,500 of support plus insurance, while his costs were 10 times that, about $35,000. The deficit has left him begging for money, literally. Trapp has started a public fundraising website, asking for help wherever he can find it. And it turns out he's not alone. Dozens of other aspiring American Olympians have their hands out, too. It's disgusting that they have to do that. If we are going to call somebody an American Olympic athlete, then it shouldn't be so hard for some of them to try and achieve their goals to represent all of us. Evan Morgenstein has represented more than 400 Olympic-level athletes over the years as a sports agent, including a few you may have heard of, like Apollo Ono and Dara Torres. Morgenstein says athletes like those can cash in. The USOC does pay athletes for winning medals, after all, and 
they can land endorsement deals. But, he says, those athletes are the exception. You have repped hundreds of Olympic athletes. Correct. How many were broke? At any given time, probably half, if not more. Even if you're an Olympic hopeful, depending on which sport you're in, you may get zero, no funding whatsoever, to maybe a couple of crumbs, you know, a couple thousand dollars. In the end, you're living below the poverty line before you make it. I mean, you literally are in line with a bagger at a supermarket. Meanwhile, he says, the USOC is awash in cash. According to a review of tax filings, on average, the committee generates more than $200 million a year in revenue. $200 million. And thanks to its nonprofit status, doesn't pay a dime in taxes. More than 100 employees are paid six-figure salaries, while the CEO, Scott Blackman, was paid more than a million dollars last year, a 10% raise from the year before. Membership in the committee has other privileges, too, like annual gatherings at fancy resorts, hobnobbing with world leaders, and the luxury of bringing spouses along to the games. When you see Olympic administrators traveling to every event, bringing families, making good salaries, and you're sitting here installing toilets in order to pursue the dream, does that bother you? Um, you know, you ever bang your head against the wall? I've, I've done that. And being pissed off all the time, um, it's not good for my relationships with my friends, with my wife or my family. Others are more upset by what the committee doesn't spend. Records show that the USOC is sitting on more than $500 million in cash and assets and is guaranteed more than $800 million from TV rights alone over the next 15 years. You can't have such a war chest when you have athletes out there living below the poverty level. That's disgusting. When they're showing massive profits, why is there no redistribution of that to the athletes? It's the same question former U.S. Olympian Ben Barger started asking a few years ago. He's the most decorated American windsurfer in history, but says he spent much of his prime couch surfing, too, because he got virtually no funding from the USOC to pursue his Olympic dream. I would stay at people's houses, beds, couches, wherever I could find a place for free. Did you ever live in your car? A couple nights, yeah. I lived in airports for a little while, too. Soon, he'd had enough. Barger got himself elected to the Athletes' Advisory Council, the closest thing U.S. Olympians have to a union. Then he rallied his fellow athletes to vote on a motion forcing the USOC to open its books. Barger got his hands on hundreds of pages of internal financial documents and says he was appalled at what he found. Well, I spent months and months learning all about the inner workings of the USOC. And so what I found out was, you know, the actual money going to athletes every year is around 10, 11, 12 million dollars out of a revenue line of around 200 to 250 million per year. And so that was a startling number to me. It was like, well, that's why I never got any money. <laughs> it's only 6%. Yes, just 6% of all the money the USOC brought in, he says, found its way directly to athletes to help them live day to day, pay rent or eat, a number he presented at the annual USOC assembly. Did you get any kind of response from the USOC when you pointed out some of these issues? We're working on it. There's just not enough money to go around. That's, that was the response you got? Yeah. We asked the USOC to show us how the money is spent 
and answer questions about the struggle of many athletes, but they did not respond to our request for an interview. They do claim on their website that they dedicate 93% of their expenditures to support U.S. athletes and national governing bodies, or NGBs. But some say that's the problem. There are 47 NGBs, each charged with running a given sport around the country, from youth competition on up, and each with its own overhead and salaries to pay. Like the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association, the CEO got paid more than half a million dollars last year, as the snowboarders we met were doing manual labor to scrape by. Or USA Track and Field, which paid its CEO a reported $1.7 million, while its track stars, some of the best in the world, made an average of less than $15,000 each. If you think of $1, right, at the top of the silo, and now it gets washed through the Olympic Committee, and it gets washed through the NGB, like what's left for the athlete at the bottom of that silo? Not much. The USOC also claims that much of its money goes to fund its sprawling training center for athletes in Colorado Springs, Colorado. This number, 2011. But Ben Barger says that his look at the USOC's internal documents told a surprising story. He found that few of America's top competitors even use the facility. They wanted to train closer to wherever they lived. Instead, he says, it was often used by another group of athletes, athletes who paid the USOC to train there, as they prepared to compete not for Team USA, but against it. It was largely used by foreign athletes. To increase the revenue. Yeah. That you didn't get. That's right. And once the games actually begin, with all the pomp and circumstance, the scope of it all, that's when the real question sinks in for many of the stars of this show. All of these Olympians creating this show, we get nothing. I generate value, and I never see any of it. Someone is stealing that money from me. You get a medal. Oh, you get a medal. You know what most athletes do with their medal? They shove it in their sock drawer and forget about it. A medal doesn't put food on the table. A medal doesn't pay for diapers. A medal doesn't pay the mortgage. We met Nick Simmons, one of America's top middle distance runners, before the summer games in Rio. He was exasperated, he said, because not only was he scarcely funded by the USOC, he was also barred by Olympic rules from making money of his own. He wanted to compete while wearing temporary tattoos advertising various sponsors, who would pay good money for exposure on the Olympic stage. Just one problem. With few exceptions, Olympic rules state that only sponsors who pay the Olympics, not the athletes, can get any exposure during the games. And so here I am at the Olympic Games, basically the Super Bowl of track and field, standing on the starting line, looking fucking ridiculous. And you'll actually run like that? Just like this. The ban on athletes getting sponsorship money is so strict that they can't even use certain words in conjunction with their sponsors during the games, even on their very own social media pages. You can't mention the words gold, silver, bronze. If I say, thank you, Brooks, for supporting me in winning the silver medal, I'll get kicked out of the village. What happens if you mention the word games? No, nope, they own that. Victory? They own that. Summer? They own summer. <laughs> They claim to. And so, even though athletes like the snowboarder and plumber Jonathan Cheever have been able to attract a sponsor, fittingly enough, American Standard, the toilet company, no mention can be made during the games. There is, however, another sponsor that's helped Cheever get to the Olympics. Just not exactly in the way he'd hoped. 
one of the companies you owe money to is Visa on your credit card. Mm -hmm. Visa is a sponsor of the U.S. Olympic team. Yeah, they don't sponsor Jonathan Cheever. I know that much. And uh, I don't know, maybe someone in marketing from Visa is watching this and wants to slap a Visa sticker on my board and, uh, yeah, wipe out my credit card debt. That would be great. But uh, at the moment, that's not happening. Every single athlete at the Olympics has social media. And if they start taking the social media and telling the true plight of what's going on in their life and documenting it and seeing how much frickin' ramen these kids are eating, people are gonna start siding with the athletes. More and more, the question many U.S. Olympians are starting to ask is, when will the people actually going for gold also get to share in that enormous Olympic pot of gold? I'd have trouble living with myself, frankly, if I worked at an organization that didn't give enough money to the athletes. And when you see somebody struggle for their dream, and it's a dream that's to represent our country, you should be giving the shirt off your back to them and saying, hey, you know what, you are the center of our program. I'm hoping there's some change because I think we can do a lot better. And I'm now joined by former Team USA snowboarder and 2018 Olympian Jonathan Cheever. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Max. So when we last saw you, you were getting ready for the 2018 Games. Once you go to Pyeongchang and fulfill that dream, what happens next? Are you able to meaningfully profit from being an Olympian? Is there anything extra you receive for having qualified and represented the country? I guess as far as making any type of financial gain out of going to the Olympics, that is 100% on me. There was no compensation from Team USA, the US snowboard team, or any of their affiliates. I was lucky enough to land some sponsors that are in the plumbing industry as I'm a licensed plumber. And it was up to myself and my agent to help me pursue those avenues. We heard in that story another snowboarder, Mike Trapp, talk about how other countries provide greater support to their athletes. I'm curious, when you speak with fellow international competitors around the world, what do you hear about the financial backing and assistance they get relative to American athletes? I can only speak for the snowboard athletes that I, I know and talk to. For example, in, in my discipline, you know, I have buddies from just about every every nation out there. And for the most part, all of these guys are, are taxpayer funded. And some of the guys from the East Bloc countries, I shouldn't say East Bloc now, but they have the perception that the U.S. is a rich country. All the athletes get paycheck and everything, but that's that's simply not true. For the most part, it's on our own dime. And even my best friend, uh, Vic Wild, he defected from the U.S. He married a Russian girl in 2011, became part of the Russian snowboard team in 2012, and he ended up winning two golds in Sochi, the 2014 Games for Russia. His wife won bronze as well. I think for that small period in time when he won those two golds, he was the highest paid snowboarder in the world, or at least one of them. So Vic made the decision to change teams to go and represent Russia because of the financial considerations at hand? Yeah, absolutely. And I think for him, the situation was a little different than someone like me. If when I was paying for myself, at least I had a coach, a wax technician, and some type of team. He was completely on his own. The U.S. Federation gave him a small sum of money within a few thousand dollars and said, good luck. I know at that time he was consistently placing like top six, top eight in the world, which isn't a small feat. But yeah, he would get all the support he needed in Russia. And uh, yeah, it started getting paid salary. Then as soon as he got those medals, he his salary 
was quite a bit of money. I noticed on the front page of the U.S. ski and snowboarding website, there's a countdown clock to the Beijing Olympics. And right next to it, Jonathan, is a tab for donations. The site says, and I'm going to quote, that money donated provides U.S. ski and snowboard athletes of today and tomorrow with the opportunities, skills, and tools necessary to fulfill their dreams. It goes on to say, your support directly impacts their journey to the Olympics and beyond. How does that sentiment jive with your experience? I'm 36 years old. I made the U.S. snowboard team in June 2005. I had more of a grinder career. I definitely wasn't a champion my whole career, but I was first in the world. I've had multiple podiums on World Cup and on the national level. And um, I never felt like I got the necessary support that I needed to compete at the highest level against all these other countries. The U.S. ski and snowboard team has a slogan, fastest in the world. You know, we have a lot of benefits. We get free lift tickets and some gear. But for me to travel to each World Cup to compete, it's about $4,000. And you you spread that out, even if we have a short season of seven events, it's $28,000. When I'm going up against an Austrian guy that has everything fully funded and and gets a little bit of a salary so they could 100% focus on on the sport opposed to seeing where they're going to get money from to go to the next event. It's not a level playing field. And with that said, Ross Powers, who has bronze in Nagano 98 and gold in Salt Lake 02 and Halfpipe, he started a foundation called the Level Field Fund along with some other Olympians. And, and these guys were able to supplement some athletes' income to help get us to these events. And there are many foundations just like that. And so, yeah, the I don't know the exact amount of money, but if you give a dollar to the USSA or the USOC, I know $1 does not go into helping the athletes out. So you're saying in your experience, more of that athlete support comes from these one-off fundraisers, nonprofits that athletes are starting than this acclaimed USSA, USOC fundraising effort that's front and center on their website. 100%. And to go up and down with like plenty of examples, I'm a blue collar guy. My dad's a plumber. I had a fundraiser at a local restaurant in Saugus, Massachusetts, where I grew up. But it was almost a little too humiliating uh, for myself when I'm asking my buddies to have food to put on the table for the kids or diapers to buy. You know, like, hey, guys, help me snowboard. And I, I think I might have raised like 1200 bucks or 1500 bucks, And I got lucky enough that the restaurant picked up the tab for the food. You know, $1,500 is a, a chunk of money to help me train, but that's nowhere near funding a season that could cost thirty to $40,000. And after that fundraiser, I remember saying to myself, like, I am never going to do anything like this again. It was, it was borderline embarrassing for me to do that. You had thoughts of competing in this year's Olympics, but ultimately chose not to pursue that. In making that decision, how much of a factor was the financial struggle and the juggling act between training and working a full-time job? I've decided to for the most part, pursue other avenues that were just smarter financially. And I I started my own business in Park City. The pandemic year presented some type of, I don't know if opportunity is the way to put it, but it was a condensed season. And so I figured I could work full-time as well as snowboard part-time and see how that panned out. And to be competitive in in anything, whether it is my job or snowboarding, like that has to be full-time. So learned that pretty quickly, made that my, my last season. I think if I had, I don't even want to say endless funds, but some type of financial freedom, I definitely would have weighed competing more because I would like to do the Olympics one more time. But at the end of the day, I have a mortgage to pay and insurance, et cetera. And if I was snowboarding, 
I would just be at best privileged enough to rack up $50,000 in debt and then try to dig myself out of that hole. Whereas now at least I have a job. <laughs> I get to ride some powder and yeah, not be stressed out over trying to ride a few hundreds of a second faster than the guy next to me. When you were still considering making another Olympic push, you did get some financial support. You picked up a sponsor, not Visa or Coca-Cola, but Bradford White Water Heaters. What does it say that you can get help from a water heating plumbing company, but not from Team USA or its major sponsors? For me, it's pretty tough to say, hey, like Visa or Toyota should be directly giving me a paycheck. I'm not Sean White or, or Lindsey Jacob Ellis, Lindsey Vaughn or these other uh, rock stars, but at the same time, like I had an excellent career, multiple time national champion, et cetera. However, I do not think that the, the USSA gives, or at least during my career, has given me the financial means necessary to be a competitive athlete. And it's a job to raise funds to do this stuff. And yeah, there's no financial support. And the USSA relies heavily on private donations to fund anything they have. And I kind of think at the end of the day that if someone's giving a large sum of money to this organization, they would rather have their name on a plaque on the side of a building than uh, a sticker on a, a snowboard or skis to get an athlete overseas to, to be competitive. Let's talk about uh, the USSA, U.S. Ski and Snowboarding. Uh, there was an AP report that came out that revealed 70% of the U.S. Olympic governing bodies applied for PPP loans during the pandemic. U.S. Ski and Snowboarding was one of them. They received $2.5 million from the government. I'm curious what you make of that and whether athletes you know of received any of that money. I'm sure when the pandemic happened, a lot of the donors for the USSA just stopped giving their donations, so they had to find money elsewhere. I received a PPP loan for my own business. It wasn't nearly $2.5 million, but yeah, I bet most of that money was for operations. I don't think a lot of that money went into the athletes' pockets. I mean, if you talk to me in 2011 or 12 when I, I was borrowing money from friends and family and coaches and just being like, hey, like, I am hoping I could get some prize money the next event to pay you guys back. I would have went right upstairs in that building and not very eloquently pretty much said, like, what, what the fuck's going on here? Like, how do you guys claim to support athletes when I am paying my own way, when multiple athletes are paying their own way? And there, there is some type of, I don't know if hierarchy is the right way to put it, but you get the top four guys that are making guys and ladies that are making great salary and the, the lower you get in that office building where the athletes are working for the physical therapy staff or the strength staff, like they're not making competitive salary. The athletes aren't able to fund their own travels. And it's it's not a system that is sustainable to keep people riding on fast snowboards or doing the best tricks or, or skiing really fast. And you know, if that's important to you or important to the athletes, then they need the funds. How does it sit with you that the USOC, which as of 2018 in our story was bringing in $200 million a year is still designated as a nonprofit and fully tax exempt. $200 million, I'm sure many athletes could be funded with that. I know there's operations and everything else to run, but $200 million, you know, that's not the largest company in the country, but I guarantee a large portion of that is going to board members and not a large percentage of that is going towards athletes. You know, you, you could talk to me or a speed skater, figure skater, bobsledder, and they're all going to have the same story that there is very minimal support going on. And that does not sit well with me whatsoever. 
So, Jonathan, big picture, now that you're winding down your career, hanging up your board, if you could talk to some of the younger athletes entering into Olympic sports, what would you want to pass along to them? The biggest thing is sacrifice, being prepared for that sacrifice, whether it's financially or with relationships or anything else. Like performing at a high level and performing at your best sucks. It's not an easy feat. It's hard work and it's hard work all the time. I think that is something that by the time an athlete gets to a level where they are near elite or or training to be elite, they know riding 99% is easy. You could ride 99% all day, but to do that 100% sacrifice or 100% preparation to be in a World Cup or Olympic snowboard race, it kind of takes a village to put someone there. One of my good friends, Anna Miller, she's on the development uh, or maybe the B squad for the U.S. snowboard cross team. And unfortunately, Anna wasn't able to go to the last Olympic qualifier. But, you know, what she's doing this week is she's helping out one of my carpenters. This is what this girl's doing is in between her snowboard cross races, she is hanging French doors for me. She's framing and doing drywall for me. And when I was her age, I was doing the same thing. I guess furthermore on this topic to snowboarding, when I started, it was at least like you could get into it middle class, but now it's the sport of kings. You know, day lift tickets are 200 something dollars, private coaching, equipment, anything to be competitive in any elite sports job is is not cheap. So I really believe that the future of the sport is going to be kids with financial resources, you know, some rich kids, kids that have no problem lighting fifty, eighty thousand dollars a year on fire just to see if they are the caliber to compete against all the other high end athletes globally. And yeah, so future Olympics, the US athletes could probably gonna be like who's uh, who's rich enough and talented enough. Um, you can't have one without the other. Well, Jonathan, it's certainly fascinating to hear your your take on all this. We wish you the best of luck in your post Olympic career. Appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to come on and, and share your experience. Yeah, th- thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, after I get off with you, I got to go dart to a meeting about a kitchen renovation. So things are a little different now, but you know, it's, it's a different type of grind and I love it. And that'll do it for today's Real Sports Podcast. We'll be back with a new episode following the premiere of the next Real Sports on January 25th. And a quick reminder to everyone listening, you can watch all recent episodes of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.